All right, this morning, we are uh, in Daniel chapter 10. And I want to begin this morning doing something a little different than we would normally do as we get to the Word of God. Um, I want to read the entire chapter this morning. We're, we're going to, it's 21 verses, and we're going to cover the entire chapter, and I think we can easily do that, and then it become clear as to why uh, as we progress. But I want to uh, start with that. So if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 10 with me, uh, and, and bear with me if I stumble through any words, uh, let's read this chapter together. Verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood that the thing and the understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came uh, flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I lay by the side of, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hedekel, then, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body was also like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me unto corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then I was in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. Verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me, which set me up upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words which I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for under thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand, to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for to, for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision of my sorrows are now turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. Verse 17, for, we can, for how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me and said, O, great, o man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be unto thee. 
be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, knowest thou, wherefore I came, I come unto thee, and now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of the Grecia, of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. I wanted to read that whole passage and get a little bit of a sense there and, and realize that there are, there are metaphors, there are figures of speech within this passage. And so the question for us in some respects is, how literal do we interpret this? How do we, uh, and I tend to be fairly literal. Uh, so we're going to unpack this chapter and look at the substantive parts. But chapter 10, just so that we understand, it's the account of the circumstances leading up to the vision that Daniel receives in the next two chapters, which will conclude the book of Daniel. It's a substantive enough passage that God takes the time to introduce even the vision with what we've just read, which we haven't encountered, even though Daniel is substantive in, its, in the visions that Daniel has received, and those, those prophecies that have been recorded here, even though they're substantial, they pale in comparison to what we're going to get into next week. And so God takes the time to set it apart and to uh, prepare uh, us to receive and to hear this vision. Now, uh, the, <clears throat> excuse me. He gives us in the first verse, he says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So the third year. We have this clearly uh, established and set. We have a time frame set. And remember that one of the criticisms of the book of Daniel uh, is that it is not, uh, it, that it wasn't written in, this, in uh, Daniel's day, but it was written in the, in the second century, which is untrue. And so this establishes it here. It brings it and establishes it in that context um, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And I'll just mention as well that, uh, well, we'll get to that in, in just a moment. If you'll turn with me, let's discuss Cyrus just briefly. We've talked about him in the past as we've gone through the book of Daniel because he's a key player. But let's look in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Uh, you remember 2 Chronicles is one of those historical books that encounters the same time period as Daniel. Uh, and in chapter 36, we, we read about uh, toward the end of the chapter, uh, verses 22 and 23, what's going to happen. And, and now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth has the Lord of heaven given me, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And so we have this proclamation. We talked about this last week uh, in regard to the proclamation to rebuild Jerusalem 
this was Cyrus's proclamation to rebuild the temple, and that specifically. And so we see a distinction there, but this is Cyrus. And, and the interesting thing about all of this is that all the way, if we turn to Isaiah, uh, we find that God in his uh, infinite knowledge refers to Cyrus by name. And he does so hundreds of years before he exists uh, and before he's king of Persia, before uh, Babylon even really is, is a world power, uh, before they become an empire. Talking about the downfall of Babylon, God gives us the name of Cyrus in Isaiah 44, verse 28. That, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. He's going to be by, and, and proclaimed by God hundreds of years in advance, uh, which gives us some authenticity. It confirms scripture. Here it is before it happens. God's speaking about it and telling us that this is going to be the name of the man, the king in charge, and he's going to be my shepherd. In other words, he is my instrument to send you back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And ultimately, we find uh, different proclamations, and we looked at those last week. Um, ultimately, we find a proclamation to build Jerusalem, and we, when we find that in Nehemiah. So, so, so Jerusalem is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. Uh, the walls are rebuilt. The roads are reconstructed. All of those things happen, and God talked about them long before time. This establishes uh, the, the timeline, and we see that it's very consistent with all of biblical prophecy leading up to this. Uh, there are some criticisms that people will make of this, this timeline. As I said, uh, liberal scholars, for the most part, want to establish Daniel in a modern time period. They want to uh, ascribe it to, because of the accuracy of the book of Daniel and the prophecies that are found in it, uh, those things that have already come to pass, they want to establish it in a second century uh, chronology. They want to say that this is something written during the time of the Maccabees, and the reason it's so accurate is because Daniel was looking back at it as history, which is incorrect. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It wouldn't be any surprise to you and I to find that there is extreme accuracy within scripture because God knew the beginning from the end before there was a beginning. Some of the other criticisms is that, well, Daniel was, didn't live until the third year of King Cyrus, and they, they referenced that back to Daniel chapter 1. Uh, I bring up the criticisms so that we might have an answer ready when people bring them to us. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse 21, as we get to the end of that chapter, it says, And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. And so there's, there's this understanding or this conclusion in their minds that, well, Daniel must have died in the first year of King Cyrus. And so therefore, this couldn't be correct because it says it's the third year of Cyrus. It doesn't say that Daniel died in chapter one. It just says that he continued even until that point, at least that long. And I realize it's a fine bone to pick, but if they're picking the bone first, we have to have the ready answer. So we have Daniel. Obviously, he lived longer than, the, than Dan, Cyrus's first year. Uh, not an issue. He says that he is Daniel, 
Belshazzar, who's also known as Belshazzar, which is his, the name given to him by Nebuchadnezzar, remember back in, in chapter one, he does that to confirm that it's the same author. It isn't some other Daniel. It isn't somebody writing on his behalf. He's, he's making it clear that it's the same person. The other, uh, the other criticism that people will give is that Daniel didn't return to Jerusalem, and he would have been a righteous Jew, would have gone back to Jerusalem. We have to understand that Daniel is very old at this point. Now, we don't know exactly what age he was when he was taken into captivity. But let's assume that Daniel was 10, which I think is probably younger than he really was. But let's say that Daniel is 10 plus 70 years in captivity. He's 80 years old at this point, 80 plus years old. It makes sense that he wouldn't go back to Jerusalem. Traveling that hundred of miles, he may not have made it. In addition to that, he's a head of state with duties that might aid Israel more by remaining there than by going back. So we have all of this. We have the time. We have this, the, these things established. We have the author clearly established. All of those things are there. We can trust what it says. We don't have to interpret anything. Now, Daniel says that he was, he was given a thing, a true thing which is an interesting word because it, it literally means speech or word. So Daniel is given a revelation. He's giving something here, and that's what it's talking about. This word is used in a similar sense. Uh, for example, in Genesis 15, I'll just turn there and read it for you. But Genesis chapter 15, verse 4, if I remember correctly, we have a couple of instances here. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, uh, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth, he that shall come forth out of thine bowels shall be thine heir. That is the wrong reference again. I apologize. Uh, but the, the word thing being translated from, uh, from the Hebrew word that means speech or words, revelation is a fairly consistent throughout, uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, verse 21. Verse 21. Uh, if we jump to the end of this chapter. This is an angelic being speaking, and he says, I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holds with me in these things but Michael, your prince. And it's an interesting thing to consider, right? When we take John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we have this, this idea that... Uh, in the word of truth, noted in the scripture of truth, that revelation of truth that God has imparted, it's always been true. It hasn't changed, it hasn't morphed, it hasn't evolved over time as some means to uh, account for those things that are happening. It's always been true, and it's been true since the very beginning, as we were talking about in Sunday school this morning with the I Am and the revelation of God's name. He has always been self-existent from eternity past all the way through eternity future and is unchanging in the middle of all of that. And with the same sense, this thing that is revealed to Daniel, this true thing, this revelation 
wasn't unknown to God, and I bring that up because it isn't a reaction to history that is happening. God is here providentially bringing about his plan and purpose, which has been established since before time began. And he reveals to Daniel this truth, as this angel says, that which has been recorded and noted in the scripture of truth. It didn't surprise God that they were in captivity. It didn't surprise God that his people had been adulterous, uh, which is what Daniel was confessing in just the last chapter. It didn't surprise God that Adam and Eve would eat of the fruit that they shouldn't have eaten of, and that he would have to send his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem mankind. And the great mystery in all of that is why would God create us then? It wasn't out of some need or deficiency in him, uh, the need for fellowship or a need to express love to somehow therefore perfect his character. It was none of those things. I think it was related to love, but it wasn't a deficiency on his part. Now, the vision that is going to be given follows in chapters 11 and 12. That isn't, we don't get to it this morning. But some of the characteristics that we have revealed here are first that it's a long appointed time, that it's something that's going to happen later. And we read that, uh, but the time appointed was long, it says in verse one. This is something that is happening down the road. Daniel, I'm going to give you this vision, but it's not for tomorrow. This is something that's going to happen in the future. And we, we find that same idea conveyed throughout. This is portions of Daniel. The phrasing is slightly different, and, the, and I bring that up because what it literally means, the long appointed time, literally means a great warfare, which is an interesting concept. Remember, we've talked about all uh, the, the, the coalescence of the enemies of God, this coming together of them, and that coalescing into a political entity over time and all those things, but ultimately, the warfare, the spiritual warfare that we uh, live in currently is something that has been prophesied and discussed even before the time of Daniel, but ultimately the time that we live in being revealed specifically so to Daniel. So time is yet future. Uh, from Daniel's perspective, it's a long way off. Uh, some of it from our perspective has already been fulfilled, and we'll highlight those portions uh, because this really gives us uh, chapters 11 and 12, this vision that's going to be revealed to Daniel, gives us the history of Israel from really from Daniel's time to the end of time. So it covers a massive amount of history, but it also covers a massive amount of future. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the next couple of chapters. Some of it's already fulfilled. There's still some future. So we, we exist looking at this uh, vision that is going to, in chapters 11 and 12, part of it fulfilled. We'll identify those parts. We'll look at the parts and clearly identify the, them that are yet to be fulfilled. And I just want to make it clear, we live in the bounds of the revelation that Daniel received in chapters 11 and 12. We live in that period of time. 
So when God is talking about this great warfare, this time, uh, this period of struggle and interaction between good and evil, uh, which should be no surprise, uh, a couple of warnings. Even though we live in the bounds of the vision, we live within the prophecy that Daniel is about to receive, it's inappropriate to watch out for fulfillment. It's inappropriate to sit around and say, listen, I'm, I'm watching the news and I'm trying to make sure to find out what bits and pieces of current events are, are literal prophetic fulfillment and then this, this little thing over here fulfills that. And that's not our mission. I'm not saying that it's uh, that it is wrong. I'm just saying that it's inappropriate to get some things out of whack, out of priority, and it makes you and I. It's a distraction for you and I as believers. Our mission, the church's mission, believers, you and I, it hasn't changed. Jesus in Matthew 28 said, "Go ye therefore into all nations." making disciples, teaching them whatsoever I've commanded you, Matthew 28, uh, 18 and 19. Not a perfect, I know it's a memory verse, it's not perfect. That's the mission of the church. That's what he sent us to do. That's what he's commissioned us to. He didn't say, listen, what I want you to do is sit around and watch the news, read your newspaper, study the magazines as you might look at, and try to fit all the prophetic pieces together to figure out where you are in the timeline. That was not the command that Jesus left us. Can it be fulfilling? Absolutely. Should we study prophecy? Yes. Revelation is the only book that promises specifically a blessing for those who read it, who study it. And it's a prophetic book. I don't discount any of that. But don't let this be a distraction. When you and I encounter the man on the street and we're going to share the gospel with him, when we hit him with the Antichrist and the beast that's yet to come or those things that we read out of the book of Daniel, it makes no sense. Sin, righteousness, and a judgment doesn't make sense to him, potentially. Let alone these other things that, that we enjoy studying and looking at. We want to start with the truth. We have to lay the foundation of truth, of the sinfulness of mankind, the desperate need for Jesus Christ, the atonement, the, the substitutionary death of Jesus, all of the, the character and the nature of God. Those are far more substantive things for us to be dwelling on. The other thing that you and I as believers ought to be about is living by faith or trust in God. We, we have studied obedience, and it's that obey, that, that hear and do mentality. This is what the Word of God says. That's what we're going to do. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's begin in verse 35.
He says, cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. If you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Pause. Here is Paul, and he's speaking to a Hebrew audience. I mean, with the book written to the Hebrews. We have that, that little bit of context that helps us understand. So here it is. They're looking forward to the return of Christ. I mean, this is written shortly after all of, uh, shortly after Christ, relatively shortly, his ascension into heaven after the resurrection, all those things. And they're looking forward to his return. And Paul is, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, and he's saying, listen, don't cast away your confidence, your trust in God and what he has said. There's great recompense of reward in that. He says, you have need of patience. That after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. We're going to continue in those things that God has called us to. Yet a little while, and we'll see him. Now, and he continues on in verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, for we are not of them that draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. The just shall live by faith. As we've talked about, as we've studied through the book of Daniel, some of the expectations that we should have as believers are, number one, persecution. Things are going to be hard. But we also have the expectation of deliverance, and we also have the expectation of victory. We're going to obey, walk in trust. This is what God has said, and we're going to do it. We're going to continue patiently being about our Father's business in His absence. We're not going to get caught up in the ancillary minutiae of prophecy and those things and being so... We're to occupy until He returns. We are enemies, we are soldiers in enemy territory effectively. We got to be busy. It's something for us to do. There is something for us to be uh, about, some business at hand that we need to be actively engaged in. Like I said, it isn't wrong, but it probably is inappropriate to spend all of our time consumed with, with poking and prodding and trying to figure out every little detail of prophecy and where am I in the timeline? No man knows the day or the hour. But what we do know is that Jesus said, make disciples, teach them to walk in obedience and to walk by faith. We can continue in those things without any question. We look at this prophecy that Daniel, or not even the prophecy, but just the things leading up to it here. And we see the effect upon Daniel. We see what, what happens to him physically even as a result of what's going on. It gives us some indication about this, the seriousness and the import that this particular vision has. So in verses 1 and 2, we find Daniel um, fasting. Uh, not in verses 1 and 2, verses 2 through 3. In those days... I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. He spends time grieving over those things uh, that are, in some respects, it's a reference back to chapter 9, where he's confessing the sins of his people. 
but he's mourning over these things. He sees uh, and understands because it talks about clearly he understood in verse one. I understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. And because of the understanding that Daniel has, he is now in mourning. He sees that the nation of Israel, his people, has a long and tedious and potentially hard future until the return of Christ. We, we mourn. We, we as believers and, and parents realize this probably more than our children, though I think they realize it too that there are hardships that our children will probably experience that we didn't have to go through because of the state of the world that we live in, because of the spiritual warfare that we exist in currently, because of everything progressing further and farther and faster than it has in the past, in my opinion, there's concern. And Daniel mimics some of that same concern. He has, in some respects, a fuller understanding of it than we do. And it affects him. He's in mourning for three full weeks. He fasts. He doesn't eat any pleasant bread. He's not eating the good stuff from the king's table. He's eating the, the meager things because he's humbled by the things that the Lord is revealing to him. His companions were moved, even though they couldn't see what was happening. It says they didn't see the vision, but they were moved with dread. There was some import just in the presence of this invisible, to their, from their perspective, this invisible angelic being that moved them to dread. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, let me read this, this verse to you. It says, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And I'm really convinced that has a twofold meaning, that for you and I as a believer, that, that word translated fearful, it means it is an awesome thing. It is a terrifying thing. And really an awesome, uh, we use it out of, out of its original context all the time. It's awe-inspiring for you and I as believers to be in the hands of the living God. But for those unbelievers, it is a, an awesome thing, an awe-inspiring thing from the perspective that this is a just and omnipotent and sovereign God. And it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands outside of Christ. So they're moved with dread. They're moved with fear, even though they don't see what's happening. Verse 8, Daniel says, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. Daniel swoons as he realizes his depravity. We're going to expand on that here in just a moment. The effect upon Daniel shows us the import of the vision and the holy circumstance Daniel finds himself in at this moment. Verse 9, yet I heard the voice of his words, and when I had heard this voice, when I was in a deep sleep on my face, Daniel prostrates himself face down to the ground, he says. And in verse 15, we find him once again prostrated down and speechless. I became dumb, unable to speak. Now, I'll tell you this, just by way of maybe salting the oats a little bit. Here is Daniel, greatly affected physically by the circumstances he finds himself in, by the understanding of the vision that he's already received. Daniel is strengthened three times by the angel, and there's more to come on that. Daniel receives strength in his most desperate times. 
Now, let's get to verse 5 and 6 here. In verses 5 and 6, we have a physical description of this messenger. And there's a couple of things to talk about, but he says, I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning in his arms, excuse me, his eyes as lamps of fire in his arms and his feet, like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. This is a physical description in some respects that is beyond our conception. And I say that because you read his body was like the barrel. His face was as the appearance. We have similes and metaphors. I don't think that it was necessarily made out of barrel, out of that crystal, but it's a, I suppose it's a possibility. But I think there's clearly a description here of something that is far outside of anything Daniel had ever seen and, and certainly anything that we have ever seen. It's interesting to me that whenever we encounter angels in Scripture, and granted, the, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details about them, but where we do find them, Ezekiel, for example, the descriptions are not the friendly little cherubs that we, I mean, tomorrow's Valentine's Day, right? And I mean, there's, there's maybe some paganism that falls into that, but those friendly little cherubs are fly around shooting you with, with arrows and giving you hard eyes for your sweetheart. That's how we envision them. These, they're men with wings. But the descriptions that we find in Scripture are something much more otherworldly, if I can use that term. And in many respects, that's what's happening here with Daniel. The words fail him to describe exactly what he's seeing, so he uses the metaphor and the simile. He talks about this figure being clothed in linen. In Exodus chapter 39, as we read about the priests and what they wore, they wore linen. And I'm convinced it's of a very similar fashion. It wasn't just any linen. The, the, the priests were clothed in fine linen, in the best stuff. It says that he, had the, he was girded with the fine gold of Euphaz. And I'll tell you that it's interesting because Euphaz, we don't know where it was. But it's one letter different from Ophir, which was an area known for its fine gold. So there are those that think that Ophir and Euphaz is the same place. And that here, he's making this comparison. He had this belt. He was girded with fine gold. The word barrel that's translated barrel here, is the Greek word tarshish. Does tarshish sound familiar? Who, went, who was headed to tarshish? Jonah. That's where he tried to travel. Why was he going there? Because it's as far away in the opposite direction from where God had told him to go. Tarshish, it, it's... The Hebrew word is Tarshish because that's the place that it came from. So it's likely a reference to its origin, and he's using that term barrel. Now, barrel could be topaz, potentially, which Tarshish was known for topaz in, in ancient times. 
could be chrysolite, could be actual barrel. An actual barrel, an example of barrel is emerald. An emerald is a barrel gem. We don't know exactly what it was. But he's giving us the idea there is a consistent color scheme, either a greenish or yellow and crystalline. Okay, so here's Daniel trying to describe what he's seeing, and, and we're left with a green or yellow crystal. I mean, that's, those are sort of, this is something that we have never encountered. A shining face like lightning, eyes like fire, arms and feet colored like polished brass. And when you hear the voice of it, it's the voice of a multitude. It's very similar to what we read in Revelation chapter 1. And I want to go and read that for a moment. If you'll turn to Revelation chapter 1 with me. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 1. And I'll, I'll just remind you that in Revelation chapter 1, we have Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, appearing to John the Baptist, and John, excuse me, John the Apostle, and John describes him as he sees him. Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot, and girt with the paps with a golden girdle. So he's got the gold belt. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. That sounds familiar. And his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. So his face was bright. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, and his laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, it's very similar very similar. I bring this up, and, and I want to make a point here. There are those who would say that what we read in Daniel is a uh, theophany or a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. And I find, it, I find that to be an unlikely thing. The, the differences that we find in Revelation chapter 1 are significant. We don't find the description of their hair or anything like that uh, being white. And the things that are absent are probably the most important to us in identifying what's happening here. In verse 16 in Revelation chapter 1, it says that in his right hand he had seven stars, and in his mouth he had this sharp two-edged sword. And when we read through Revelation, we see Jesus coming in his, uh, in his glory those things always accompany him. And I bring that up because the, the revelation that we're looking at in Daniel, the significant parts that are yet unfulfilled, we encounter in Revelation. So there's no sword. He's not holding the stars. Turn with me back to Daniel chapter 10. Let's look at verse 13. This is probably the biggest reason that I don't think this is a Christophany or a theophany. This isn't an appearance of God, and this isn't an appearance uh, of um, Jesus Christ before. There are those good, solid 
commentators, good solid theologians that will disagree with this, but in verse 13, as he speaks to Daniel, this is what he says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and 20 days. So 21 days he's held up by the prince of Persia. And he, he says that I had to have, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remain with the kings of Persia. And we're going to explain that verse here in just a moment. But we have this person similarly, similarly described to Jesus Christ as he reveals himself to John in Revelation that had to have help from an angel to overcome another angel. That doesn't sound like an omnipotent God to me. So I don't think it's a Christophany for that reason, and that's the biggest reason. Now, am I, could I be wrong? I could be wrong. And, and there's one other potential, and I don't think that the context bears this out at all, but the other potential way that it could be a Christophany is that there is the description of what Daniel sees in verses 5 and 6, and that is a Christophany or a Theophany, and then there's a second angel involved. But the context doesn't, doesn't really indicate that nor bear that out. There's the, we're inferring something, but when we just read it for what it says, there's one angel. The explicit is going to have to constrain the implicit in this case. So in my opinion, it's not a Christophany. It is an, a theophany. Uh, there you have it. That's why. Good men would disagree with me, but. <clears throat> Verse eight. This is where we probably get to the more substantive parts for us this morning. Uh, sort of some introductory stuff, but this, this gets to some good takeaways that the spirit has led us to this morning. Daniel says, therefore, I was left alone and I saw this great vision and there remained no strength in me. And my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. We have in the midst of this man's depravity contrasted with this figure of an angel left with, let alone the holiness of God. Okay, And what I mean by that is that Daniel, as he describes it, his comeliness, those good things about him, his righteousness, anything of any merit he says, has become as corruption. Filthy rags. We have that humble understanding of his sinfulness contrasted with the holiness of this angelic being, let alone the holiness of a perfect, righteous God. In Isaiah chapter 6, we find a similar encounter as Isaiah is... Uh, comes into the presence, is given a, a vision of the presence of God. And as he encounters these angelic beings who are, who are flying, crying, holy, 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 declaring the holiness of God, Isaiah says, woe is me, I am undone. Isaiah 6, 5, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king of the Lord of hosts. Woe is me when he realizes the depravity of himself, his sinfulness in his, 
in contrast to the holiness of God. And as we look at this and we, we see this exchange that takes, well, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here just a little bit, but the exchange that takes place of our unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ through what Jesus has done in 2 Corinthians 5.21. In Hebrews chapters 2, if you'll turn there with me for a moment, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And this is a quotation from Psalm chapter 8. It says, One in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with uh, glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. But this, this comparison between man and angels, and we find that man is created lower in in ability or power or strength however we might phrase that but we see him established as the special crowning gem of god's creation all the way back in genesis god didn't speak man into existence but he formed him specially out of the dust of the earth and then he breathed the life into him So there is some hierarchy in regard to capability or things like that, but he is given dominion over God's creation as well. And in Romans 3.23, so there's this description and the separation between man and angels. They're not the same by any means. We don't become angels. There's no weird doctrine there or anything. But we have that confirmation of Romans 3.23 as Daniel encounters this, the holiness of this angel And he's reminded that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That that standard of perfect righteousness that God has established has been broken by mankind and every one of us. In Isaiah 64, 6, we would read that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And just as... Isaiah was undone. Daniel realizes that even those good things, my righteousness, those, my, my obedience, my reverence for the Lord, all of those things before him and his holiness don't merit favor. They don't bring about our salvation. But thanks be to God who has done everything necessary for our salvation who traded his perfect righteous son, Jesus Christ, on the cross so that we might be made and declared to be righteous, given a righteousness equal to his by faith alone. I mentioned that spiritual warfare, and I want to talk about that for a moment as we, as we progress here. We have reference to it in Daniel 10, verse 13, and really, again, in verse 30, where he's held up by this prince of, king, prince of the kingdom of Persia. When we, in Daniel, when we read in many respects, not, not exclusively, but here in these visions, prince simply means angel. So the angel that is, that is of the kingdom of Persia withstood me uh, in 20, 21 days. He held me up for 21 days. And then we have this other reference, I returned to fight the prince of Persia. And when I'm gone forth, lo, the the prince of Grisha shall come. There's this ongoing battle. Chapter 10 here, in some respects, 
and 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 you can quote me because I've said this in the past, right? That the Bible it gives us some information about angels, but we do a really good job taking that little bit of information and running far too far with it. But here in Daniel chapter 10, we get a rare and a brief, so let's not make anything out of it that it doesn't indicate, a brief glimpse of the spiritual reality that we exist in. Right? We have these angels that are fighting. We have those things, the, the, this struggle between good and evil revealed. We talked about in the past as we studied through the book of Daniel that here are these kings and, and, and all of these things, and there is a spirit of Antichrist, and, and I use that term on purpose, spirit of Antichrist, behind these enemies of God. And here we find that confirmed. We find the demonic activity, we find those, those whether, it's, whether it's possession or whether it's influence or, or however, what, whatever form it may take, there it is. There are enemies of God, both physical, and there are enemies of God, spiritual. And we're given this rare glimpse. It confirms the battle between the spirit behind the kingdoms. Uh, we also find that Michael, the, the archangel Michael, there's only two angels in the Bible that are named, Gabriel and Michael. We find both of them in the book of Daniel. That's it. But the Mike, Michael, that angel there, he is your prince. So either specifically Daniel's angel or Israel's angel. And I tend to think more Israel angel because there, there, there are things in reference to, and we'll progress, we'll see that as we go through the vision a little bit further next week. But the fact that there are demonic forces working against the people of God shouldn't surprise us. The fact that there are enemies of God, both physical and spiritual, shouldn't surprise us. And we see it discussed just a little bit here. This ongoing battle where even when we overcome the prince of the kingdom of Persia, there's going to be the prince of Grecia coming. Greater is he that is in us. Greater is he that is in us. And I'll just add to that that the joke's on them. <laughs> and I say that because God has already given Daniel visions, three, two visions, and Nebuchadnezzar one vision about these kingdoms that will succeed him. We see that the enemies of God, in many respects, are simply bringing about the will of God in the world around us. God is sovereign. But the spiritual reality that, uh, of this battle exists today. It's still true for you and I. In Ephesians chapter 6, we read about the armor of God. We read about those things that we have been given as means of defense and means of offense in this spiritual battle. And it begins in verse 10. And he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And we have the exhortation to put on the whole armor. Not just parts of it. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That we may stand against the enemies of God. Those who, the, the spirit behind it. This isn't a physical, no church is issuing swords and belts, and helmets. 
because that's not the need that we have. The need that we have is for the spiritual armor and those things that are being uh, compared to here. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And this is the reason why, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's the battle that's waging. That's the battle that you and I are commissioned as, in, as soldiers. Jesus is the captain of our salvation. And that's a military term. We are brought into this. We are soldiers for Christ in a very real sense. Wherefore, because of the battle that we're fighting, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Have a belt. We're girded with truth. Having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. You can study these on your own. You can see what they are. You can, as I said, they're, we're not given a literal sword. It says the sword that we have to wield is the word of God. Are we skillful in it? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing this under the soul and spirit, the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Unfortunately, all we're really equipped to do oftentimes is just to swing it like this. Yet God says that this is a precision instrument. He doesn't say it's a scalpel necessarily. He says it's a sword. We're just ill-equipped to use it. Above all, he says, take faith. So we can quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. We are fighting a spiritual battle, and God in his grace toward you and I, in his preparation for the mission that he has given us, has said, here are the things that you need to protect you, and here are the things that you need to be offensive in the war that we are surrounded by. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you'll turn there with me, these are familiar verses for us. We need to reiterate them. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not physical, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We have weapons of warfare that are not carnal. They're not physical, but in addition to not being physical, they aren't those. The wrath of God doesn't bring, the wrath of man doesn't bring about the will and the purpose of God. And what I mean by that is that my vengeance 
isn't going to bring about what God has desired. Vengeance is his. The, the carnality, me exhibiting my flesh, even if it's a righteous indignation, quote-unquote, doesn't equal God's righteousness. It is his to repay. We're going to cast down imaginations, and we're going to cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And personally, you and I are going to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, we're going to think about things the way that God thinks about them. We're going to obey. We're going to hear and do. In Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, and there's a lot to unpack here, but we're just going to look at these couple of verses and leave, leave those things packed. It says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life unto death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, of the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath. Because he knows that he has but a short time. But when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And there's more, we read more than we needed to, but there's some some. Uh, illusion, some illustration here of what is about to come in this vision. That's why I read it. Right? Satan, the, the clearly identified here, is cast down. And who is he going to persecute? The woman that brought forth the man child. Israel. Israel is going to be persecuted. D don't miss that. Okay. How did they overcome the enemy? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Here's the blood of Jesus Christ, and here's the testimony of, of who he is and what he has done. That's how they overcame him. We look at the weapons that we've been identified with, the spiritual war that we find ourselves in, and here it is. We're on one side or the other. We're on one team or the other, whether we want to be or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. But we as believers should be acknowledging of that fact. We should be willing to be on that side. And we have to look at it from the perspective that God has well equipped us for the task at hand. The gates of hell are not going to prevail. We have been given offensive and defensive weapons they are at our disposal, and we do well to use them. We do well to equip ourselves. We do well to take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. We do well to tear down strongholds. We've been talking about in, in Bible study on Thursday nights, repentance. When we acknowledge that this is wrong thinking, this is not glorifying, this is inconsistent with what God has revealed in the Bible, and then we repent of that and we begin to think about it, to understand it, to study it, from the perspective that God has said, this is what I think about it, that is tearing down a stronghold. We need to expect the battle, and we've been equipped for it. 
but I want you to ponder a few questions. Have we taken heed of our equipping? Have we neglected what God has given us? Do we employ it? We are on the front lines and we need to be unashamed and we need to be bold. Daniel, in the midst of all of this, he understands the hardship that Israel is going to experience. And in some respects, this is still true for you and I as believers. Uh, there is an illustration in the nation of Israel. But part of the illustration that we find of the nation of Israel is the faithfulness of God. And that's probably the biggest, this biggest thing that God used them as an example of. We find that God comforted Daniel and give, gave him strength in particular a couple of times. But I want to look at verse 11, 12, and 19. God says of Daniel, O man, greatly beloved. In verse 12, he tells them to fear not. As we get down to verse 19, he says, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee. And he exhorts him to be strong. What made Daniel a person of note to God? What established him as a, as a man greatly beloved by God? It's an interesting question in my mind. It's one that I've thought through as I read this. Well, what established him? Why, why was he different? than anyone else that we find in Scripture. And I'll tell you a couple of things in preface to this next point, that there aren't perhaps a lot of differences. And he may not be, he, he's definitely not, and we're going to look at some examples, he's definitely not unique. So if he's not unique, and we look at this group of people who, who are there, uh, what sets them apart? What are the common threads in their character. Well, Daniel's love for and his faith in God. He set himself to understand. He wanted to know. He, he took the time to study, to be engaged in God's word. We read that last week. Here he is. I understood the times because I was studying the scrolls. He took the time. He set himself to understand. He also humbled himself. We see Daniel humbling himself over and over through this through the book here, whether it's uh, in, in face of persecution and knowing that there's going to be hardship as a result. When he prayed, even though he knew he would be in the lion's den. Or whether he besought in the very first chapter of the book. that Lord, we're going to trust you first and foremost. Not the provision of the king, not, not those things that they are putting before us, these pleasantries and, and the good food, but Lord, Lord, we're going to trust you, period. The actions of his obedience and repentance rooted, and those are clearly rooted and established in his trust in God. Why would he come and make repentance? Why would he hear what God had said and then respond to it in obedience? Because he trusted God, because he knew he existed, because he, he knew that is where his hope lie. I want to look at a couple of, 
couple other examples in Scripture. First, we go to the book of Job, if you will. Job chapter 1. We have Daniel clearly called beloved of the Lord. Uh, some uh, special significance, if you will. <clears throat> there it is. Job chapter 1. You remember that in the first chapter of Job, we have the angels and they're proceeding before the Lord. And, and we have even Satan being there. Um, and there's this interaction between God and Satan regarding Job. In verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. He was perfect and upright. That's a very substantial statement. Then as we get down to verse 8, God brings Job to the conversation. Satan does, and he says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. That was God's assessment of Job. Now, we know Daniel's not perfect. We know that Job wasn't perfect. We know that even Esau, who, not Esau, Enoch, who walked with God and then wasn't, he wasn't perfect. There's something that distinguishes them from others such that God would point them out. And Satan accuses him. He says, well, listen, God, he's only faithful to you. He's only perfect and upright because you've protected him, because you, you've made him a special object. God, quote-unquote, hedged him. God put the fence around him, if you will, not to earn his faith, but because of his faith. And I know that because when we see it removed, when we see the permission given to Satan to antagonize and to persecute Job, even in the midst of that, having lost everything near and dear to him, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. There was a faith and a trust in God no matter what happened to him. Daniel exhibited the same faith when he was faced with persecution as a result of a certain death, as a result of seeking the Lord in him only. As he prayed toward Jerusalem, knowing that there were people watching, knowing that that was the proclamation of the king, that we only make any request of the king for this period of time. Yet he bowed his head to the Lord and to him only. David was also acknowledged as a man after God's own heart, something that, is that, that set him apart from others. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13, and you could turn to Acts 13 if you'd like. That's probably a better reference for us. But in, in 1 Samuel 13, 13, I'll read it to you. It says, and Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandments of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon thee. Oh, nope, that is the wrong reference. I'm, I'm two. That's two today. Acts, though, is correct. I'm fairly certain. Let's turn to Acts 13. I apologize. Acts 13. 
verse 22. <clears throat> and when he had removed him, so, so uh, just by way of context here, uh, they're discussing Saul, uh, which, which Samuel was also discussing. Uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was the king. That was the king that the people had chosen. Afterward, they desired a king, and God gave them Saul. But God removed him, and that's that's what we were reading about there in First Samuel. That was removed. There's a reference somewhere there uh, talking about God has chosen somebody after His own heart. And it says, "When He had removed him, He raised unto him David to be their king. To whom also He gave testimony, saying, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart." which shall fulfill all of my will. David wasn't perfect. David committed some fairly egregious sins in his time. We have adultery, we have murder, we have a great sin of pride in which thousands of people died as a result. I want to know how many people I'm king over. Let's count them. Well, they're not your people, David. They're God's people. And then there's a plague that enters in. And when David humbles himself, God removes the plague. In John, John 16, verse 23, we have the discussion of John, who, who is beloved of Jesus Christ. We have these men who are identified here as somebody special, so to speak. And I and I not super saints or something like that, but there is something in them, some character that establishes, establishes them as unique. And just like Daniel, whether it's Job or David or John, it is their love for God and their trust in him that will establish them. As we read through the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, and we get to that hall of faith, every person in there exhibits love for God and a trust in Him. They're in there because they trusted, because they walked in faith. And there are those who are not even named. It isn't unique. This isn't some elite few. There's four or five, you know, super saints who, are, who God has called out by name. No, God is recognizing of all who will operate in love and in faith whether it's you or me or Job or David, we're not talking about perfection. But we're talking about obedience. We're talking about walking with the Lord. <clears throat> Daniel received special strength in the midst of his being affected by this vision. He was encouraged, and, and as the angel reached down three times through this account and touched him and gave him strength, we have something even, even more significant. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to close here in Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, let's read verses 16 through 18 first. It says, the Spirit itself 
bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with glory, which shall be revealed in us. So we've received something much better than Daniel did. Daniel looked forward to uh, the, the coming Messiah. He looked forward to all of those things that he was witnessing in this vision, and it affected him greatly, and he received strength at the touch of this angel. But you and I, who are looking back on the cross of Jesus Christ, looking back on the fulfillment and the execution of the new covenant, have been given the seal, the sign of that new covenant, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Elsewhere in the book of Romans, it tells us that it is the earnest of our salvation. It's the down payment, so to speak, of that which God has promised us. It seals us and sets us apart as his children. As many as believe on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. We didn't receive a temporary strengthening from the touch of an angel. We received adoption into the family of God who also promised to never leave us nor forsake us. As we get into the, the latter parts of Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, nothing can be against us is the short answer. And he goes on to list several things that may come to mind. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? It's all rhetorical. The answer is all no. None of it will separate us from the love of God. But here is Daniel in his vision for just a moment, if you'll allow me, here's Daniel in his vision seeing persecution, principalities, powers, hardships. And he's greatly affected by it. And we experience some of that in the same sense. We see and we, we, we pray for those who, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are persecuted for their faith. We're moved by the common distress that they may encounter. We're, we look with some trepidation at the things that are happening in and around us with Hope that we don't have to go through the same. Yet we have the full assurance that God is never going to leave us nor forsake. That as we've received the seal of that spirit, who shall separate us from the love of God? No one. Nothing. Verse 37, he says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We don't lose the battle. 
To win is Christ and to die is gain. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing separates us from his love. When we look at it and we're, we're faced with the possibility and the almost surety of persecution, of hardship, of trial and tribulation because of our trust in the Lord, because of our faithfulness to him, because of the reciprocation of love that we have received, that we may exhibit toward him, we have the assurance that nothing, nothing separates us from his love. And as we begin to move forward, and as we look at the, the remaining chapters here, we see this vision that so greatly affected Daniel, and we see the, some of the ramifications that that may have even in our lifetime. Don't be deceived. It may look bad. It may look bleak. It may look hard. But nothing, no principality, no power of darkness, nothing will separate us from the love of God. That the weapons of our warfare that God has given us, those things of protection and those things of, of uh, offense, so those things that we take into the battle to gain ground are effective and sure. We don't have any reason or any need to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, of his truth. We can stand firm in the assurance that he is for us and not against us, that he is with us, that if he has commissioned us, he will strengthen us for the task at hand. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word, and I pray, Lord, that as we, as we see the effect of all this that has come upon Daniel, that the understanding that he held, Lord, that we would be strengthened in the same way. The Lord, knowing the surety of our salvation, the surety of your uh, faithfulness towards us, Lord, that we would be emboldened to be those ambassadors and soldiers for you. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, that you have strengthened us. We thank you, Lord, that we have been given the insight and the understanding that the, the war that wages around us isn't a physical one. And while it may take on a physical form on occasion, Lord, ultimately it is a spiritual battle. And we praise you for that understanding because it helps us to address and to fight the proper battle for your glory, for your honor, for the salvation of those that we may encounter, Lord. We pray that you would go before us in the hearts and minds of those that we would encounter, that we might engage with, Lord. that you would do work ahead of us, that as we sow the truth of your word, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would find fertile soil. And Lord, we also pray that we would be strengthened for the task at hand, that we wouldn't be fearful, that by your grace, Lord, we might serve you acceptably. Father, as we worship this morning, as we have opportunity to sing praise, for who you are and Lord, for what you've done.
We pray you'd receive it as the offering of our lips now. In Jesus' name, amen.